I'm independent. You know it. You love it. All right. Hello, and welcome to another edition of New York Update. Let's start off with Cuomo versus Nixon. In the polling, Andrew Cuomo is still maintaining a healthy lead here. July 30th, so we're we're at the end of July, and the primary is going to be Thursday, September 13th. So it's going to be a real uphill battle for Cynthia Nixon. In 2014, the challenger to Andrew Cuomo was Zephyr Teachout, and she got a 32 or 34 percent of the vote with very little money, um, and it showed that there was a progressive backlash to. Uh, mainstream uh, corporate democratic politics, but obviously not enough. Fast forward to 2018, and Cynthia Nixon is doing a pretty good job of getting out in the media, uh, much better than Zephyr Teachout. In fact, Governor Cuomo's strategy in 2014 was simply to ignore her. He hasn't been ignoring Cynthia Nixon this time around. Cynthia Nixon has forced him to change a couple of policies. He has changed his position on a pipeline in Rockaway Beach. He's, uh, he's changed his position on voting rights for prisoners uh, or, or ex-prisoners. He's changed his tune on the IDC, which is the breakaway conference of uh, rogue Democrats. As soon as Cynthia Nixon issued a statement in opposition to them, uh, Andrew Cuomo very quickly made a deal to dissolve the whole conference and try to get that uh, behind him. Medical marijuana, uh, or I'm sorry, legalization of uh, marijuana and recreational marijuana uh, is something that Cuomo has signaled support for. And it's funny, you know, Cynthia Nixon gets a couple of headlines and, you know, a couple of thousand people like her tweets. And all of a sudden, Andrew Cuomo was changing his tune. So this is how democracy works. Nobody's really going to stand up and pay attention to you if you're talking about fixing problems or doing the right thing or having a conscience or anything like that. But they will pay attention to you if you mobilize a whole bunch of volunteers, put people on the ballot, and then those people start getting elected. Cuomo is making some moves. He's not uh, Other moves he's not making. And one of the uh, items I wanted to talk about, a really big issue, because it's not only Cynthia Nixon that's weighing in on this issue, but it's going to end up being everybody else running for office in New York. The state Senate, the state assembly, you know, everybody gets a vote. And the issue is big because it not only has to do with uh, education funding, and the funding for needy schools, but it's also an issue that decides how the MTA repairs are paid for. Everybody knows New York City subways have been going through a terrible year or two with uh, delays and track repairs, and they just don't have the money. Everybody's saying, well, how are we going to address this? Some people have said the way to fix the problem is congestion pricing. This means that anytime a car comes in from the suburbs, they have to pay a hell of a lot of money to get down into Midtown, right? So if you're driving into Manhattan, they might make it uh, past 96th Street. They might make it 72nd Street. They might make it 59th Street. But there will be like this gateway where, uh, you know, if you take your car and you go, you know, too far south into the congestion zone or, or you know, where there's likely to be a lot more traffic, then you got to pay something. And it could be 10 bucks, 15 bucks. Nobody knows exactly how they'll structure it. So 
One of the uh, solutions that has been on the table for a long time, how to pay for transportation, how to pay for the needy schools that are not getting their basic funding all around the state, has been the millionaire's tax. This has come up in past years, and it's very controversial. Now, I don't know why in a democracy something like this would be so controversial, right? We basically have it set up where 99% of us are poor and 1% of us are rich. Or, you know, really some of us are middle class. I mean, the number of people that are in poverty has been on the rise for years. And so that's a pretty bad trend. But, you know, the average person is paycheck to paycheck. Maybe they have some credit card debt or, you know, even if you're doing okay, you probably have a home loan, which is going to take 30 years to pay off. Maybe you have student loans. You know, America, it's, it's, it's tough, you know, for the average person. And then in New York, we have, you know, the millionaire class and the multimillionaire class and the billionaire class and the multi-billionaire. New York City is uh, where Wall Street is and where there's a lot of very rich, wealthy business people and people that inherited money and people that uh, are, you know, investors and they have their businesses there. They have uh, hedge funds or uh, equity firms. The question for a long time has been, well, why don't we just take some money from the rich to pay the bills and, you know, help everybody else. It would seem that in a democracy, that would be pretty easy to do, (laughs) right? How can the 1% possibly compete with the 99% if you're voting in a democracy? Well, folks, the answer to that question is if you look at the last election. And in the last election for president, 2016, Donald Trump got 24% of the vote. Hillary Clinton got 25% of the vote. Gary Johnson and Jill Stein got a few percentage points. And 46% of Americans did not vote. And, um, you know, it's a way for the really, really rich to pay some people like uh, Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity, to go out there and every single day in every single way, just badmouth liberalism, socialism, any kind of uh, working class kind of uh, redistributionism, and to get, you know, the tax breaks for themselves to keep the campaign finance system in place so that they can year after year just buy off the politicians and then rewrite the laws any way they want. And that's what's been going on. So let's get back to the Cynthia Nixon race. Cynthia Nixon was asked, uh, how do you feel about a millionaire's tax? And she says she thinks it would be a great idea. Right now, in, in up in Albany, in the New York State Senate, you know, it's pretty closely divided. But the assembly is pretty solid blue. And the assembly has passed the millionaire's tax. Last year, or this past budget season, they eliminated some loopholes. They, you know, they did these moves where, uh, you know, it kind of just scrapes around the edges, but it raises revenue uh, at the expense of the really rich to pay for things, to close the budgets. And so they have something up in Albany called the One House Budget. The Senate submits their One House Budget. The Assembly submits their One House Budget. Those two budgets are kind of reconciled together. There's an executive budget, which is the governor's proposal. And, you know, they work it all out. Every year, there's some compromise and there's some blackmail and arm twisting and backroom deals and cigars and all that. But, um, you know, by and large, you know, what gets passed is, um, you know, gets passed. And Uh, There hasn't been the millionaire's tax for for years. They did have a millionaire's tax a couple years back. I want to say probably like six or seven years ago, and then it was lowered to benefit the multimillionaires. 
And we're not talking about a lot of money here. You know, we all pay federal income tax, and then we all pay state income tax. And so we're only talking about that state income tax portion. And you all know it. I mean, you can see every year that you... And we're only talking about like 1% or 2% difference. So if you, uh, you know, let's say you're a multimillionaire and you're paying... 4% of your income to the state for your state income taxes, well, this would only raise it to 5%. I mean, they're really only asking for modest gains. And it's really not a hike so much as it is reinstating the taxes that used to be there. Because they have done this before to plug up budget gaps. And I mean, it just seems pretty simple and easy thing to do to take a little, little bit of money from multi, multi millionaires, people that are, you know, so rich that it doesn't even affect their lifestyle, right? I'm not talking about, you know, uh, upper middle class people, people that are, you know, working hard and paying off a house and everything. We're not talking about people that have earnings, you know, maybe like 100 grand or 150 grand. We're talking about, you know, earnings over, uh, you know, maybe 500000 a year or th- even higher. I mean, in, you know, in this case, let's say they set the millionaire's tax for people that earn 500000 a year. You know, let's raise it 1% or 2%. And that will, you know, help pay for the MTA. That will help pay for, you know, some needy schools. Obviously, I'm all for it. But um, Cynthia Nixon uh, is is getting a lot of pushback on this. So I'm reading from June in the uh, New York Daily News. There is a Ken Lovett piece where he says, at least three Senate Democrats say a millionaire's tax would hurt their members in their suburbs and fear it could quickly land the Democrats back in the minority. What a piece of... I mean, if you're a lawmaker from the suburbs like Westchester County or Rockland County or Long Island, your constituents cannot possibly all be millionaires. There's some areas like Scarsdale where, yes, the average person there is really, really rich, but those places are few and far between. When these senators are saying that their constituents would never go for it, you know, to pay like 1% more a year on your state taxes politicians are paid to say stuff like that. And I don't know who is so gullible to believe that raising taxes on millionaires would would be unpopular at the ballot. So we have to just get back to sanity here and we have to vote. I mean, middle class people have to vote, even if you're, you know, upper middle class, everybody and, you know, millionaires and billionaires, you should vote too. The problem is they get a lot more than a vote. They pump candidates full of money and then the candidates will do anything for that money. You know, they'll even legislate against the best interests of their own constituents. And we know this because they've been doing it for years. So who are these state senates, state senators that Ken Lovett is mentioning? Only one of them would put their name down, and it was uh, Senator Diane Savino, one of the founding members of the IDC, uh, Jeff Klein's girlfriend. She's a uh, Democratic state senator from Staten Island area which is a little more uh, well-to-do than, uh, you know, the average New York City uh, area. Um, But still, I mean, you're not talking about, you know, super, super rich enclave. And so it's really just horse pucky. The other two senators, they wouldn't even go on the record. They asked for anonymity. But, you know, they say it plays into the hands of Republicans who are aggressively seeking to tie the suburban and upstate Democrats to Bill de Blasio and his liberal agenda. So, I mean, this is just disgusting, folks. You know, this is like, it's like, you know, an intelligence test. 
If somebody says, ooh, uh, that politician's not good because he raises taxes, doesn't anybody stop and say, well, well, wait a minute, Who, whose taxes did he raise? Did he raise everybody's taxes? Or did he only raise taxes on multimillionaires, in which case it would only affect 0.1% of the population? But, you know, this is the mindset, folks. This is the uh, authoritarian mindset or the Republican mindset or conservative, whatever you want to say, uh, you know, I really think that if you're middle class, you should vote in your own economic interest. Uh, I'm not afraid of the word socialism. Democratic socialism is not the same as like Venezuelan socialism or uh, socialism from red China. Um, democratic socialism is the type of government they have in Scandinavia, in Finland, Iceland, Norway, Germany, Canada, Australia, Japan, uh, you know, it works. <laughs> France, UK, Switzerland, pick your country, and there's you know, totally successful models of democratic socialism that have been working for decades and decades, and those countries have far less debt than us. And, you know, they have, you know, a little bit more of a social safety net. But, you know, that's better than giving, you know, tax breaks to multi-multi-billionaires and just buy over the government. I don't think the founding fathers of this country wanted that system. We, they, they wanted to get away from aristocracy and monarchy and feel like we've just been falling right back into it. So Andrew Cuomo is, you know, kind of this, uh, you know, conservative dem or, you know, corporate dem. And when you follow the money trail, you know, that's what tells you anything you need to know, you know, because these IDC members and Andrew Cuomo and, you know, even Hillary Clinton and Obama, they were taking money from Wall Street. They were taking money from rich fat cats. And in the case of Andrew Cuomo, he's taking money from the same hedge fund managers and billionaires that are funding the Republicans, that are purposely funding a, you know, a balanced or a deadlocked Albany, you know, so that there's a very narrow margin of victory for everything, and all they got to do is spread some cash around to get it. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in this race. I'm not sure if Nixon is really making the strides that she needs to in the polling, and so that's worrisome. But on the other hand, she's getting a lot of media attention, and um, ever since the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez race, Cynthia Nixon has been celebrating AOC. She's been uh, endorsing her, appearing with her, taking photo ops with her, doing everything she can to ride the coattails and the success of AOC. And that's because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez really did create an earthquake in the Bronx and Queens in her district where she unseated corporate Democrat Joe Crowley. Joe Crowley was the fourth senior most Democrat in Congress and was in line behind Nancy Pelosi to take over as speaker, potentially. But instead, he's going to be out of a job in January because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez took him out. And the way she did it was by, just saw this today in some of her campaign materials, she increased turnout in the district by 68%. 68% of people voted in that race did not vote in the last cycle. Uh, that's incredible. I mean, she energized new people to come out. I'm sure some of this was Donald Trump. But, you know, she also did a lot on her own, um, you know, to you know, get out there as a bright young personality, you know, talking about, uh, you know, giving back, you know, working people dignity. Um, she's pro-labor. She's um, for uh, raising taxes on the, the multimillionaires. 
um, Medicare for all. And she's very eloquent. I went on her website and read about it. She's very eloquent when it comes to campaign finance. And she believes that this is the number one root cause problems in, you know, in our political arena is that the really, really rich have been buying off both sides. And so from day one, she refused to take corporate money. Now, the question is, is that spreading? Cynthia Nixon has vowed not to take corporate money. And Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has also vowed not to take any corporate PAC money. She did say she was going to take PAC money from unions, but that's a little bit different. And so it is spreading. And, you know, there are some Democrats that are kind of on the fence you know, should I stick with the Clinton-Obama model, you know, and be an ally to Wall Street and just kind of be a little bit better than the Republicans? Or should I really, you know, join this progressive movement, you know, this whole Occupy Wall Street movement and, you know, social justice and Black Lives Matter and take off on that? So we have one of each in New York. We have one senator, uh, Senator Gillibrand, who said she's no longer going to take corporate PAC money, and the other senator, Chuck Schumer, um, who is the minority leader now, and he hasn't said anything. So uh, it's going to be interesting. I was a guest on the Jeff Santos show yesterday, and he wanted to know all about the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez race. He is a big Bernie supporter, and he wanted to know if this is a trend that is really catching fire and if we're going to see a lot more candidates uh, like AOC and if, she, and if they're going to be successful or not. And, uh, you know, I told them what, I, what I'm seeing on the ground, and that is there are a lot of younger teachers um, and younger workers that are getting a lot more involved in politics, even teenagers and kids with the, with the gun thing and the solidarity with the Parkland, Florida shooting of survivors. And so you are seeing this big spike in participation and in involvement, and we will see when uh, September 13th rolls around. We will see if these people really turn out at the polls. And, you know, the same earthquake that they saw in Alexandria's district, you might see in other places. I'm really seeing a lot of energy. I'm really seeing a lot more candidates, and I'm seeing a lot more metrics, you know, the social media, the traditional media, the petitioning, the, uh, you know, word of mouth. It all seems to be leaning towards the left right now. And, uh, you know, it makes sense because Trump has taken the country to the right, having all three chambers of, uh, you know, of elected government. Uh, Joe Crowley still hasn't left the WFP line as we are broadcasting today. Uh, I check that every day. <laughs> and he's, it, it looks like he's going to still be there on the ballot, but that he is claiming that he's not going to be campaigning on the WFP line, even though former Senator Joe Lieberman put an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal asking him to stay on the working families line and to run against AOC as a spoiler and, uh, you know, prevent the scourge of socialism from taking over. There is a really great national debate going on right now, and that the question is, what is socialism? What does socialism mean? What is Alexandria Cortez trying to do? Because she says she's a democratic socialist, and she's a member of DSA. DSA is Democratic Socialists of America. And you should know that since the Trump election, their ranks have swelled and they're gaining steam all the time. It, and it really didn't hurt when uh, Cortez won. Um, I think they said they had a spike uh, after her win. Shortly after that, Cynthia Nixon announced that she says, I am a Democratic Socialist. And she was trying to get the endorsement of DSA. 
So uh, keep an eye on that, too, Democratic Socialists of America. You know, it's not your father's socialism, and this is a really interesting debate that's going on. What does socialism mean? Depending what dictionary you look up, socialism, you know, could mean the means of production are taken over by the government, right? And so this, you know, sounds like communism or Marxism. Um, They say, you know, that private property is abolished. You know, this also sounds like Marxism or, you know, some of these kind of utopian uh, philosophies. This is not what Bernie Sanders is talking about. This is not what Alexandria Cortez is talking about. You know, any democratic socialist. But, you know, they are talking about uh, regulating uh, capital, regulating corporations, regulating industry. Um, you know, the democratic part is, uh, you know, is pretty obvious. It means the people vote and the majority rules and, the, you know, it's government by the people for the people, like Abraham Lincoln said. But, it's you know, it's also socialism. That means it's meant to benefit the greater group, the larger mass of people, right? You know, not the elite 1%. It's, you know, bringing the focus back to the middle class, back to the workers, you know, to where the the greatest population is. Uh, makes perfect sense to me. But remember, you know, we're following like 50 years of, you know, Rush Limbaugh being on the air every day, uh, you know, saying that socialism is bad, that, you know, it's evil, that these are the devils, this is the work of the devil, tying it into religion, tying it into abortion rights and, you know, fear of immigrants and fear of terrorists. And, you know, it's really, you know, just a propaganda campaign. But I will say that it has worked. And, you know, people are very reflexive, you know, to uh, to avoid the word socialism. And they're also reflexive to avoid anything to do with taxation. You know, like, I don't want to, I don't want anyone saying, you know, that I like to raise taxes. But it's like, well, what do you mean? Is it targeted taxes? Or is it uh, everybody's taxes? They're like, I just stay away from the debate. And, you know, it doesn't make sense. You know, I think we should take back the word socialism. We should define it ourselves. And if you look at uh, President Eisenhower back in the 50s, he was practicing socialism. There they had a high tax rate for millionaires and billionaires. And they were unapologetic. We were rebuilding after World War II, and that's what we needed. And big industry and and big corporations and the billionaires, you know, enough of them bought into it so that we did it. And what did it do? It expanded infrastructure. It expanded jobs. It expanded growth. And, you know, it was the 50s to the 70s was a boom economy for the U.S. Why don't we go back to what worked? Because everything's being run by the oligarchs right now. Only people don't realize it. They think that, you know, they're trying to combat the the scourge of the USSR and Red China because everybody has that, you know, embedded deep within them, ingrained and etched into their souls. It's funny that Trump, you know, is making this brand new deal with Russia and Vladimir Putin. All of a sudden, these Republicans don't care a bit about everything that we ever had against Russia. All of a sudden, it's all, you know, hunky-dory. So we want to uh, switch focus right now. Uh, We want to update the issue that we spoke about. Uh, We spoke about it the second week when we were interviewing Julie Goldberg, um, also the first week when we spoke about Betsy DeVos. But there's a big issue in New York uh, having to do with ultra-Orthodox yeshivas. It's only a small percentage of the of the Jewish schools, the private schools, religious schools. Most of the Orthodox yeshivas do a fine job of educating the kids and giving them a well-rounded 
education in compliance with all laws and regulations. There are, however, a subset of ultra-Orthodox schools. That number is somewhere above 49, and um, we don't know exactly where it is, but 49 such schools were listed on a complaint that was submitted to the Department of Education three years ago. The Department of Education initiated an investigation. The investigation is three years old. It's taken quite a long time. They've only investigated 16 schools in all that time that we've heard of. And so the uh, nonprofit that has been leading the charge to uh, tell the story of the kids and the parents from within the schools who want a legal uh, education that includes learning how to speak English, uh, math, social studies, science, everything else. Well, that nonprofit known as Yafed, they um, initiated a brand new lawsuit on the third anniversary of the uh, initial complaint. The investigation hasn't been doing squat. And so they initiated, initiated a lawsuit based on what happened in the last budget negotiation where Simcha Felder the state senator who presides over the so-called Jewish Super District in Borough Park, Brooklyn, um, you know, a district that is gerrymandered so tightly that it concentrates Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox Jews so um, densely that Simkefelder, you know, got voted in immediately and he held his seat and, you know, he commands a lot of power in Albany negotiations and has requested a special carve-out and this was passed in the last budget law. It was a special ruling that said that these ultra-Orthodox yeshivas can be basically exempted from uh, having to teach all the standards, having to teach English, having to teach science, social studies, right? I mean, these are basically rabbinical schools. And they are looking to, you know, create the next generation of rabbis. And so they study the Torah and the Talmud and ancient texts and the Dead Sea Scrolls and and, and what have you. But in actuality, only about 5% of the students end up be, uh, becoming rabbis, and that's only the boys. So that means 95% of the boys end up doing other things. And if you study from the age 13 until you graduate high school, nothing other than ancient Hebrew and Aramaic texts, you're not going to have a lot of job prospects when you graduate high school. These schools are not doing the job of preparing them to live in the secular world and to branch out and go take jobs and, you know, start careers. And, and so they're kind of like held captive. They're, you know, within the community. It's a very insular community. And I mean, I'll say it, I, you know, I'm of Jewish heritage and I'm not religious, but, you know, I'm calling it like I see it. Um, I think that, you know, there's a very, very small number of ultra-Orthodox ultra that are, you know, bringing their kids up to be ultra, ultra-religious and to not be very cognizant of the world around them, to be just, you know, in this bubble, in this religious bubble, and to take orders from a religious leader. And, you know, this spills over into politics because every election, they all get into buses and they all vote exactly as the rabbi orders um, and, you know, without any deviation. And because of that, they are an incredibly powerful voting block. And it's so powerful that Bill Clinton will pick up the phone, uh, John Boehner will pick up the phone, you know, and call the rabbis, try to get their vote, try to get their support for a candidate. When you're raising kids, 
to do nothing other than study religion, and then as soon as you turn 18, 19, 20, to uh, get married and have as many babies as possible, um, and then, you know, for them to go back into the schools and just kind of keep expanding the sizes of the yeshivas and, ex- and um, you know, and just keep repeating that in, in generation after generation, you have a very powerful voting block where the rabbi has, like, king-making power. They can pretty much, you know, decide something and then have, at the snap of a finger, uh, thousands and thousands of people voting in lockstep. I don't think that's, you know, what America should be. I don't think that's what Martin Luther King spoke about in his I Have a Dream speech, where black and white children and children of all colors, you know, sitting hand in hand in classrooms, learning about the, the country that we live in, and then we're making progress and going forward into the future. You know, I believe in integration. I believe that, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, Hasidic Jews and ultra-Orthodox Jews should learn English and should learn science and should learn math and that they should be exposed to all these subjects so that they could find out what interests them and pursue their dreams and, you know, not uh, have to ask a rabbi for permission to go to college or not to, you know, be considered an outcast if you want to leave the community or do something else. You know, maybe somebody wants to be like a make movies or to be an astronaut or, you know, be a veterinarian. I mean, you know, people are born to do certain things and they should go out and find what those things are. They shouldn't have anybody hanging over them, whether it's religion or politics. Nobody should be, you know, live under the shadow of another person making all the decisions. I believe in liberty. I believe in free will. And, you know, I hope that these kids, uh, you know, get what they deserve. They deserve, you know, a chance to learn uh, all the subjects and, and the English language you know, here in America, just like the right-wingers say that Mexicans and Puerto Ricans and, and all, and, and Chinese people need to learn America, they need to get with the program, they need to, you know, uh, find out our history and learn the language and be able to read the signs. Well, you know, if they're going to say that about, you know, brown people, well, then it should go for everybody. And if you're Jewish and you're born here and, uh, you know, you're going to a school that takes public education money, that takes public funding, taxpayer funding, then we, we've democratically decided that everybody, you know, every kid should learn each and every subject. I really wish, you know, Yafed luck with their lawsuit. What they're actually contending in the lawsuit, it's a little technical, but they're suing the governor and the Commissioner of Education and the Chancellor of the Board of Regents. So these are the, the three big education officials. And they're, they're saying that when the governor signed the last budget law and he made a deal with Simcha Felder, which gave a carve-out for Jewish schools, for ultra-Orthodox yeshivas, that, that violates the constitutional separation between church and state. And so they're actually attacking the budget law that was made um, in the last session, and then on the state level, you know, that filters down through something called the Blaine Amendments to the New York State Constitution, and it's true. I mean, if I, if I was in the legislature and I passed a law today that said uh, all Catholics, you know, get 10% off on their taxes and all Jews have to pay 10% extra, I mean, you know, people would be outraged. How can you possibly discriminate on the basis of religion? Well, the same thing goes for school. How can you, you know, how can we not have equal application under the law of of our laws? And so, you know, they get around that by saying, well, you know, this only applies to schools that 
you know, have hours that go from 8.30 in the morning until 9.30 p.m. at night, and only, you know, yeshivas do that. And so, you know, it is a little fancy footwork, but hopefully the lawsuit will get to the bottom of it and root out all of that corruption and expose these people for what they are. They're subjugating uh, tens of thousands of, of Jewish boys in order to make them, you know, like mindless voters, um, you know, that, uh, that, that follow the, the dictator. And uh, I'm not for that. I mean, you know, it's really the parents in these schools that are blowing the whistle, but they're doing it anonymously. And that's why this um, organization, Yafit, exists, is to protect them. All they want, you know, they don't want to leave these schools. They follow the the same, you know, religious sect that they were in and the, their parents were in and grandparents were in. They just want the legally prescribed curriculum or the standards. And, you know, and so can my kid please learn English here? Can my kid, can my kid please understand science? It's a little contentious, you know, but I think we're headed towards progress. Um, you know, this lawsuit did get um, some attention here in the New York Post uh, recently. There was also a Times piece that spotlighted the lawsuit and the new push. The The Jewish lobby, the, the lobby that represents these ultra-Orthodox yeshivas, they don't have to be, like, you know, thrilled over the moon, but they should not be going to whistleblower organizations begging for help, you know, and, and uh, bringing the state, you know, in and bringing investigators in. They should get, you know, the parents should get the education that they want, which is the type of an education that will give them a good paycheck at the end so that they're not reliant on, you know, the religious leader, you know, to go go tell me where I can go work and go tell me what I can go do and train them how to go apply for welfare and train them how to apply for food stamps and housing subsidies and, and health care subsidies. You know, how about we all just find a job that we love doing and just work and, and pay our own way? That's how I feel. Let's get on to this other uh, headline that came out this week. The headline is a little bit related to the Cuomo race. Um, Andrew Cuomo is a big proponent of charter schools. And for years, uh, by opening up charter schools and supporting the charter school movement and taking money from charter school movement, including Republican donors, Cuomo has been um, creating more and more and more schools that do not have unionized teachers. It's becoming a lot more noticeable after the Janus Supreme Court decision that Cuomo has actually created what they call a scab army. If you look at all these teachers in all these schools and it adds up to thousands of teachers, they're not in a union. They don't get benefits. They get paid less. They have no job security. I'm not sure if the pensions are comparable. I think they have 401ks, which are only as good as you're working. But if you can be fired at a whim because you know, you spilled a soda on the principal or something, you know, you have no job security. And so, uh, you know, Andrew Cuomo is being disingenuous when he's trying to say that he's going to be supporting unions following the Janus versus AFSCME decision. He is, he has been quietly creating uh, an army of non-unionized teachers by supporting charter schools. And he wants to continue uh, expansion of charter schools to this day. He was leading the state before Betsy DeVos was even nominated as the Secretary of Education. And that, that goes on today. So when you talk about charter schools, you know, you're talking about these 
um, privatized schools. They take public money from the taxpayer, and they are privately managed. They're managed by these, you know, management companies and these networks that are um, the CEOs get paid a lot more than public employees, and they base everything on test scores. You know, nothing else matters. And the biggest chain of charter schools in New York State uh, is called Success Academy. And I think they're up to like 46 schools now. All the schools are in New York City. Success Academy started uh, years ago, and little by little they've been adding on grades. They started out with little kids. And, uh, you know, they started out with kindergarten, first and second grade. And then those kids got older, and so they opened up more middle schools. And then those middle school kids got older, and they started opening up high schools. Now they're having a problem, right? So there's this big chain. They got, like, dozens of schools and, you know, not too many high schools. And they just started opening up high schools to accommodate the students that they've been teaching through elementary and middle school. There's a piece in uh, the paper that uh, is talking about a mass exodus. It's lost the majority of their teachers uh, between last year and this year. And so this is from the Daily Cause, uh, author Alan Singer. He's, uh, and this was also reported in the Wall Street Journal. The uh, charter school network has a school called the Manhattan High School for the Liberal Arts. And of the 67 teachers and administrators who started school last fall, only 20 will be returning for the new school year. I mean, that is embarrassing. That's what they call a mass exodus. Some of the teachers spoke to the Wall Street Journal. Some of the teachers gave quotes. They said that all these people care about is test score and that they do not listen to the teachers. The teachers might have some experience. You know, maybe they were taught in another school. Maybe they they know how kids learn. And they say that these administrators only care about test scores. They do not listen to teachers. So they're losing their staff. They're losing their staff at an enormous rate. 70% of their staff is walking out. There's been other problems at the Success Academy high schools too. Uh, You've been seeing student protests too. I'll tell you as a teacher, the younger the kids are, the easier they are to boss around, to, you know, control, to, uh, you know, to be an authority, you know, to loom over them and tell them what to do. And then the older and older they get, the more they realize, hey, I have various different ways of pushing back here. And including, you know, when they get to be high school, they're bigger than the teacher, right? So they've been mounting protests. The Success Academy high school students have been protesting things like too much homework and uh, not enough input. You know, some of them have been saying that, uh, you know, they're pushed too hard, that it's not rational, they're pushed to the breaking point, that they have no childhood. You know, you're seeing a lot of different complaints like this. One of the biggest problems, though, with charters, with Success Academy charter schools is that they, last year, graduated their very first graduating class. That means their very first high school went all the way up to 12th grade, and those uh, seniors finished the school year, and then they had a commencement ceremony and graduated. The problem was there was only 16 students left, right? And this is telling you what the charter school model is. The charter school's lifeblood is standardized testing. And so right from the beginning, they only want little kids whose parents are completely on top of them, right? They're going to guide them and help them finish their homework. They're going to get them to school on time. You know, they're going to make sure that they're dressed in their proper uniform and, you know, that they have three square meals and they study hard, right? That's what the charter schools are looking for. 
Now, it is patently illegal to cherry-pick kids like that, and so they have to have a, a lottery process. And to get into these schools, you have to be so lucky to win a lottery. The thing is, uh, once you win the lottery, you don't necessarily get into the school. They have a way of weeding out parents that they don't want. They have four different meetings that you have to attend. One is a orientation. One is a registration. The other one is when you find out uh, that you have to pay $600 for uniforms and you have to buy textbooks that you don't have money for. You know, there's fees. And all of these parents just kind of drop out. In the end, only 50% of the parents who won the lottery to send their kids to Success Academy charter schools ended up enrolling in the school. Then let's say one of these parents does make it through all these hurdles, right? And they're told, oh, yeah, you know, you have to come to the school and volunteer. You have to spend a certain amount of hours. You have to come in on Saturdays if your kid comes in late one time. There's all these punitive restrictions and everything. Let's say a kid gets through all of that and enrolls in the school, and now they're in school, and they're, you know, studying with these bright young scholars, and, you know, all of a sudden the kid is acting out a little bit. Maybe they're distracted, or maybe, you know, they had their birthday, so they're whispering in somebody's ear, and they keep getting in trouble. Those kids are suspended, and they're suspended so much that there's no way that they can catch up. And then the school, who has no right to force the kid out, suggests to the parent, maybe it would be better for you if you enrolled your son or daughter in a different school. Maybe that would be in your best interest, right? And folks, that's how the charter schools do it, right? And, you know, charter schools in most places don't even get better test scores than the, than the traditional public schools. But in New York City, they do because, you know, that's all they concentrate on all day, every day. And they're really, really good at it. They have very, very high test scores in math and ELA, two subjects. And, you know, they don't want anybody messing that up. So they uh, cherry pick, you know, through this rigged enrollment process. They only market to families that they want. There's nothing stopping them from renting a mailing list and getting, you know, black and Hispanic families that have good credit or that are car owners or whatever. And, um, you know, they, they stack the deck. They, um, they get good scores, and then they try to compare themselves to public schools that take the kids that they rejected and take the kids that they wouldn't enroll in the first place. The charter schools also do not backfill, which means if a kid leaves, they do not, you know, if a kid is like, you know, starts in second grade and gets all the way up to fourth grade and then leaves, they do not replace that kid. And that's why they only end up with 16 graduates at the end. You know, what happened? You know, a graduating class is supposed to have maybe five classes, you know, the 12th, the whole 12th grade. You know, it should be 100 kids, 200 kids. Uh, my daughter graduation, there was uh, 400 kids graduating, you know, one school. So how come it's only 16? The answer is because all these kids get weeded out little by little until there's nobody left. And, you know, these, I'm sure that these 16 kids that are left are all college-bound geniuses that are, you know, that have got bright futures. And nobody's faulting them, and nobody's faulting their parents for wanting, you know, some, a nice school environment, a calm place, and success for the kid. But it really comes at a price. And the price is, is if you weed out 90% of the kids to get to the elite 10%, that is not a way to conduct a school system. That is a horrible method. I mean, that is, 
cherry picking. And so hopefully people will be more aware of that. You know, the next time a bill comes around where they want to open up the charter cap and they want to, you know, create more charter schools, you cannot do this in New York State. You would have to pass a law in Albany to open up the cap. And so, you know, every single state senator and state assembly member and the governor um, all have a say in this. They all have a vote in this. And, uh, you know, when you're voting for your um, representation, for your lawmakers, you should ask them how they stand on charter schools. And maybe, you know, if you live in a suburb like this, you don't have charter schools there. You know, it's like a not-in-my-backyard thing. But, you know, where there are charter schools, you know, realize for every charter school that they say there's a success story, you know, there's the other side of the seesaw where there's, you know, a school with a higher concentration of high-need kids that the charter schools are ignoring because they haven't been enrolling them. So, you know, that's one way that the, you know, corporate education reformers have been screwing over, you know, the population. I mean, basically, they're picking your pocket because when every time they open up a charter school, they're shrinking or closing down a public school. And folks, we don't need that. We need public education. It's the cornerstone of democracy, you know, getting a little socialization along the way and, um, you know, taking advantage of the opportunities that we have. And, you know, if you're a rich, wealthy family and you want to send your kid to a private school and they have a great program there, God bless you. More power to you. Do whatever you want. But public schools are, are definitely the way to, to go. The vast majority of kids in a, uh, in a region or in a state or in the whole nation. And so the, that's what we really need to be encouraging. We do want to mention uh, one last thing. Julie Goldberg, who we interviewed for State Senate uh, on this show two weeks ago, is going to be having an event this Thursday coming up with Zephyr Teachout, who is the progressive candidate who's running for attorney general. Now, Zephyr Teachout is an interesting personality because she ran for governor four years ago against Andrew Cuomo. Um, I mentioned before she got about 32 percent of the vote on a shoestring budget. Then she ran for Congress and she attracted the attention of billionaire Robert Mercer. And the last thing he wanted was Zephyr Teachout to go into the House of Representatives. So he bankrolled a, a, an opponent by the name of uh, John Faso, who was like a Wall Street hedge fund guy, and spent millions, I think it's $10 million. I mean, they, they broke every kind of record for a congressional race and funded her opponent. Robert Mercer, by the way, is the secret billionaire guy that was behind the Trump campaign that took over when it was floundering and hooked them up with Cambridge Analytica that brought Steve Bannon on board and a couple of other people, um, a guy by the name of Bossy, uh, who's kind of like a famous dirty trickster, and uh, some communications people, and kind of rescued the Trump campaign, you know, enabled him to win, and did the same uh, for congressional races, you know, just just plastered money all over the district. And, you know, TV commercials really help. And, you know, getting postcards out and mailers and doing uh, expensive polling and radio announcements, you know, really uh, put them over the top. So Zephyr Teachout is not giving up. Now that Eric Schneiderman has stepped down uh, for New York Attorney General in a cloud of disgrace and scandal, Zephyr Teachout, the Fordham Law professor, constitutional professor, has stepped forward to run for attorney general. She got a 
shipload of uh, petitions signed, uh, way, way more than necessary. I think you need 15,000 signatures on petitions, and she got something like 60,000. And so she's running for attorney general, and what she's promising to do, should she be elected, is go after Trump. She wants to go after uh, the Trump Foundation for criminal violations. Trump the Trump Foundation is already being sued by the current New York State acting attorney general for civil violations. And they are also seeking to ban the Trump Foundation uh, from taking charitable contributions anymore. But Zephyr Chichetto is looking to prosecute criminally and not just Donald Trump. NRA was actually used as a funnel to take Russian money which would be ordinarily illegal to spend in an election, but because they gave it to the NRA, and the NRA just turned around and said, hey, we're an American corporation or American organization, and then they gave that money to candidates, you're telling me that's legal? So I personally endorse Zephyr Teach out for attorney general. Um, There's some other candidates running in the race that aren't half bad, uh, but I think that she would be the best because she's already suing Donald Trump under the emoluments clause of the U.S. Constitution. Um, she joined a group called Crew, which is Citizens for Review of Ethics in Washington. Um, and they contend that Donald, Donald Trump has been breaking the law from day one by not divesting his businesses and his international hotels. And if you become the president, it's right there in the Constitution. It's the Emoluments Clause. You're not allowed to take in anything of value. You're not allowed to have any business or store or hotel where any foreign officials and foreign governments can you know, buy things and purchase things because that leads to corruption or the appearance of corruption which we definitely have, and Trump is already in hot water over this. They've had reports of, you know, the Russian delegations just renting out entire floors of the Trump International Hotel, just sinking more and more money into, you know, his private business while he's the president of the United States. Same thing with his country club. As soon as he got elected, he, like, tripled or doubled the membership fee. And, you know, there's no... There's nothing stopping, you know, some, you know, Malaysian prime minister from becoming a member of that country club, paying him all the money in the world and, you know, getting FaceTime with him. So that's exactly what the Emoluments Clause was designed to to prevent. And that is exactly what Zephyr Teachout is suing Donald Trump on. Uh, There was just a ruling just one week ago that said that the case can go forward. And so these things do take time. But uh, that's what's happening. So I see the time is after 7 o'clock. We did cover a lot of ground. Um, we do, we do want to leave you with the last announcement that uh, Zephyr Teachout will be in Nyack uh, this Thursday. She's going to be meeting State Senate candidate Julie Goldberg, who we interviewed last week. That would be 10 o'clock at the gazebo or the big clock in Nyack on Main Street. Coming to you from Nyack, New York, this has been Jake Jacobs with another episode of New York Update. Uh, Thanks always to Richard Quinn and Rockland World Radio for hosting us, and we'll see you guys back here next week. Sign out. Welcome to the new sound of Rockland. Rocklandworldradio.com. Exciting.